Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a new season of the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore, and today we begin a new study, drumroll, in the book of Ephesians, which opens, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. While the book claims the first century church planning evangelist, the Apostle Paul, as its author, many modern scholars challenge this assertion. This debate is of little interest for our study, but I just thought I'd flag it for completeness sake and to explain why I don't necessarily assume the Apostle Paul is the author of the letter. From here on out, I talk about the author as the author or the writer rather than specifically Paul. As we also learn in the first verse, the letter is written to the Christians, literally holy and faithful ones who live in the city of Ephesus. The concept of holiness described as a divine calling sets this group apart from the rest of the world, who by contrast are considered common or profane. As you may recall, Exodus 19 verses 5 to 6 describes Israel's calling with similar language. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Just as Israel is called to be faithful as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, so the author of Ephesians chapter 1 describes the church community as holy and faithful to the Lord. In this way, the author reframes this group as a new Israel who are loved by God and enjoy his grace and prosperity. In the ancient world, Caesar granted his grace to his loyal and faithful subjects and slaughtered those who were unfaithful. The New Testament borrows this imagery to describe the grace that God showers upon his faithful, holy people as they experience his peace. In fact, as you may recall from our study in John, the Gospels present Jesus as completely different to Caesar, the king of Rome. While Caesar wields violence to gain political power over the people, Jesus lays down his life to set his people free from all oppression. The idea of experiencing God's peace also echoes the Pax Romana, that is, the peace enjoyed by the citizens of Rome. Yet this concept of peace is also reframed as it echoes the Hebrew word shalom, which describes a state of perfect well-being in all realms of life, including health, relationships, spirituality and finances. All this grace and prosperity is experienced in Christ Jesus, in Christo Jesu, which sets an important theme for the rest of the book. Let's continue reading now from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as heirs through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. You may have noticed that the in Christ theme is mentioned seven times in this passage. Six times we see the phrase in him and once in the beloved. Everything that happens in this passage happens in Christ. According to the author, the community was chosen, blessed, redeemed, and united in Christ as they faithfully fulfill their calling as God's holy people. Again, all of these concepts are applied to Israel in the Hebrew Bible to describe their unique experience as God's beloved people. By using such language to describe the Christian community's salvific experience, the author frames them as the new Israel. This observation is important for interpreting the claims that the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world and that he predestined us for adoption. Some people interpret these phrases as proof for the doctrine of predestination, that is the idea that God individually selects every single person that will ultimately join this faithful, holy community. But on closer inspection, we notice that throughout this passage, the first person plural, that is we, is employed to describe the corporate experience of the church. In other words, the community itself is predestined and chosen to be a vessel of salvation and blessing in Christ, just as the community of Israel was chosen for a similar purpose in the Hebrew Bible. The author does not employ terms such as election and predestined in this passage to outline what we might think of as the modern doctrine of predestination, but rather he uses these terms as an attempt to communicate the Christian community's role as the New Jerusalem. A cycle of positive emesis is described as the author mirrors the divine blessing they experience back to God. In a sense, this is the holy vocation of the faithful saints, to create a community characterized by the imitation of God's positive example, who has lavishly blessed them with every spiritual blessing. By these means, the community strives for the spiritual blessings which come from the heavenly places, including faith, love, and hope. 
By contrast, the world surrounding the Christian community is divided and characterized by malice and hatred as everyone fights each other over commonly desired earthly objects such as honor, power, and wealth. According to the author, this earthly economy will be progressively overcome by the Christian movement of positive mimesis. Jesus, who modeled a life of positive mimesis to the world, was imitated by his disciples, who were then imitated by others. Through this mimetic process, which continues to this day, people are redeemed from the destructive worldly cycles of violence and incorporated into the faithful community of saints. In this community, everyone is forgiven and becomes blameless because the accuser has been cast out. Through Christ's crucifixion as the innocent victim, the scapegoat mechanism was unmasked and our accusations exposed as arbitrary and hypocritical. This revelation means that those in Christ can no longer join with the mob and persecute their scapegoats. All they can do is reciprocate God's love in unity as scapegoats and enemies become friends. As more people join this cycle, the pull of the mimetic movement grows ever stronger and it progressively moves towards the divine eschatological purpose of uniting everything in all creation. Through this progressive unification, all spiritual blessings are lavished upon the world as earth becomes heaven. Verse 13 introduces this idea of the Holy Spirit with which people were sealed when they heard and faithfully enacted the word of truth. People get really concerned about the role of the Holy Spirit in this process. For now, let's just sidestep all the theological chicken and egg type questions about whether faith or the Spirit comes first and have a look at what the text is actually trying to communicate. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit which animates the holy faithful ones who find themselves in Christ and explains their drastic change in lifestyle. By way of contrast, there are other spirits in the Bible which impact people's behavior negatively. For example, in our last study in the book of Judges, we saw the Spirit of the Lord empower various people to perform superhuman acts of violence. In 1 Samuel, the behavior of King Saul is affected by various spirits, one which makes him depressed and violent towards David, and another which causes him to prophesy among a company of prophets. The Gospels also talk about bad and evil spirits which were reported to torment people, making them deaf, dumb, and even epileptic. Just as ancient people assigned these unexplained behaviors to unseen spiritual forces, so the changes in the lives of Christians who are drawn into a cycle of positive mimesis are attributed to the Holy Spirit. By these means, the writer to the Ephesians deifies the potent mimetic forces which transform the lives of Christians. According to the author, the Holy Spirit is the seal and guarantee of the Ephesians' inheritance. In other words, if the Ephesians have doubts concerning their faith, they can gain confidence by meditating upon their experience of the Holy Spirit within their community. What further evidence do they need than the very unfolding of heaven right before their eyes? 
From these observations, the Ephesians can conclude that God has been working among them and will continue to do so until all things are eventually unified in Christ. This vision is the inheritance of the saints and the hope of the gospel. In the 20th century, many pastors and evangelists attempted to simplify and distill the gospel into a simple call to faith to escape divine wrath after death. Yet, as we have already seen in this episode, the biblical gospel vision is much richer and comprehensive than that. When people imitate the example of Jesus, they participate in a positive cycle of mimesis which inspires others to do likewise. In this way, people are redeemed from the hell constructed by the mimetic rivalry and violence which enslaves them. In place of this personal hell, they begin to experience heaven on earth as they engage in a new cycle of kindness and love with others. As more people are drawn into this cycle of positive mimesis, heaven is progressively unfolded and divine blessing unleashed. The Ephesians experience serves as a guarantee that God will continue the unfolding of this process until all of creation is unified as one in accordance with his divine purpose. This is the true gospel. Reading on now from verse 15. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills all things. Having heard about the faith of the Ephesians, the author gives thanks and prays that the Lord will continue to unfold heaven within their very midst. To this end, he prays that the Lord will give the Ephesians a spirit of wisdom and revelation of knowledge. In the Bible, the concepts of wisdom and knowledge describe a practical way of living that facilitates human prosperity and flourishing. Think about the type of wisdom portrayed in the book of Proverbs, which commonly leads to health, wealth and fulfillment, while its counterpart, folly, leads to poverty and destruction. From a mimetic perspective, the revelation of the innocent victim and the Holy Spirit, which inspires the community's positive cycle of mimesis, will lead the Ephesians further into this practical form of wisdom and knowledge and open their eyes to the glorious future ahead. Just as God the Father raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places, so too the Lord will unify and raise this present evil divided world until heaven and earth meet. 
This image communicates the outpouring of heavenly wisdom and knowledge through the revelation of the cross and cycles of positive mimesis, which will ultimately unify and transform our world. Let's talk a little bit now about the image of Christ seated upon a throne at the right hand of God in the heavenly places above all earthly authority and power with everything placed under his feet. The image of Jesus seated next to God the Father shows he acts under God's authority as a conquering king who has vanquished his enemies and now assumes his position of glory and authority over them. But unlike an earthly king who wages war against other earthly kings, Jesus fights a spiritual battle against the folly of mimetic rivalry and violence which threatens to destroy our world. Having employed earthly wisdom and knowledge to denounce and conquer mimetic rivalry and violence, Jesus now assumes his posture of authority, seated on a throne in the heavenly places. He may not have an earthly throne or kingdom, but he reigns over everything in the unseen realm of the heavenly places because he has conquered mimetic rivalry and violence. By imitating his example, the Ephesians have the power to join Jesus on a heavenly throne as they conquer mimetic rivalry and violence in their own lives. Just as the head controls and guides the body, so Jesus guides and directs the lives of his followers, who likewise triumph over all authority, power, and dominion. Do you see the genius here in this graphic illustration? While the kings of earth appear to be conquerors and champions, they themselves are conquered by mimetic rivalry and violence. Consumed by their desire for more land, power, people, they wage war on the other empires and other kings, and by these means will eventually reach their downfall. By contrast, Jesus was never seduced by these temptations, and for this reason he reigns over the kings of the earth, who now have become his footstool. This triumph over the mimetic economy of earthly desire is the glorious inheritance of the saints which continues to unfold as Christ and his body, the church, fulfill and complete all creation by imitating his example. Reading on now from chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the authority of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift from God, not by works so that no one may boast. For we are 
his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. The author reminds the Ephesians of their life from which they were redeemed. Like the rest of the world, the Ephesians were once caught in the cycles of mimetic rivalry and violence, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This spirit, the spirit of mimetic rivalry and violence, drives humanity to pursue their passions and desires, which ultimately generates wrath as people fight over the commonly desired objects. By these means, the ruler of the authority of the air creates division and destruction within the world. So pervasive and potent is this demonic figure's influence in the world that mimetic desire and rivalry appear to permeate the very air we breathe. Again, we see here powerful mimetic processes attributed to supernatural forces. We see a similar concept in modern movies when someone breathes in a mysterious coloured vapour and suddenly they are turned into zombies who unquestioningly carry out their evil overlord's desire. Think of Poison Ivy in the 1997 Batman and Robin movie or Wanda Maximoff's Mind Control in the Marvel franchise. Although the Ephesians were zombified under the influence of this ruler of the authority of the air, God redeemed them and seated them in the heavenly places with Christ. In other words, by imitating Jesus' example, the Ephesians have conquered and now rule over the very mimetic rivalry and violence which continues to enslave the sons of disobedience. Under the sway of the ruler of the authority of the air, the world is described as sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Now, these of phrases are genitive constructions which technically can be interpreted in numerous ways. For example, a child of wrath could refer to someone who is conceived through a wrathful event, someone who suffers the wrath of others, someone who suffers divine wrath, or someone who is consumed with their own wrath and vents it upon others. How do we determine what these phrases mean? Well, in a word, context. The people controlled by the ruler of the authority of the air are called children of disobedience and wrath because these two traits dominate their behavior and lifestyle. They also suffer the disobedience and wrath of others who are likewise caught in this negative cycle of mimetic rivalry and violence. One could also say that these people are conceived and forged in disobedience and wrath as they imitate the example of those around them. One sure thing is that this wrath is not divine or divinely inspired, but perpetuated by the Lord's negative foil, the darker side of mimesis, this demonic figure, the ruler of the authority of the air. Lest the Ephesians take pride in their transformation, the author reminds them that they were saved from the ruler of the authority of the air by the grace of the Lord. In other words, their salvation is a gift from God, bestowed upon the Ephesians in exchange for their loyalty and faithful conduct. The Ephesians were once dead, zombified by the ruler of the authority of the air, but have now been saved to a life of freedom from mimetic rivalry and violence. 
Through this process, the Ephesians are transformed into the Lord's masterpiece for the purpose of doing good, as opposed to their former evil conduct. In so doing, they provide a model for others to imitate and likewise be transformed and saved by the Holy Spirit of mimetic mercy and kindness. Only by these means will the immeasurable riches of God's heavenly grace and kindness be truly manifest. Thanks for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.